Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Rudy Ray Moore. Dolomite is his name. Fucking up motherfuckers is his game. So, Rudy Ray Moore is an actor, comedian, who's most famous for four motion pictures. Dolomite, The Human Tornado, Petey Wheatstraw, The Devil's Son-in-Law, and Disco Godfather. Rudy Ray Moore was the clown prince of blaxploitation, I think it's fair to say. Uh, His period of glory may have been brief, but it resonates even today, where, as we speak, a biopic starring Eddie Murphy is being shot about his life. And that's actually what prompted me to go, all right, let's do an episode about him. Because Rudy Ray Moore is one of those figures that, like, I knew a lot about, but I had maybe seen only one of his movies. Mm-hmm. Which is weird, because, like, when you get into cult films, he's a character that you see on, like, the cover of all the books. Mm-hmm. He's, like, the go-to. And I had actually never seen the film. Really? Yeah. Uh, had you before? I'd seen Dolomite before, and I had seen The Human Tornado before, but this week I watched all four of them, and it just felt really like being immersed in this uh, crazy world. I mean, they were just re-released by Vinegar Syndrome and Criterion-level, like, discs where they're special features, they look amazing, and the fact that they're actually in their original aspect ratio makes a big difference, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. So how did Rudy Ray get to making these movies? Well, he was a comedian, first and foremost. And he was a comedian that was known for working blue. He had a number of albums. I believe one of them is called Eat Out More Often, which actually hit the top 25 on the Billboard charts. Another one was called Let's Come Together. Uh, if if you stumble upon them at your local used record store, you'll notice that they often have him surrounded by topless women on the album. They were known as party albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure who would actually put these on at a party, but uh, he was kind of like... A Don Rickles-style insult comedian. Yeah, like he would play off the crowd. You can actually see that at the beginning of The Human Tornado, mm-hmm. where he's just making jokes at the expense of the people in the audience. But on these albums, he created the character of Dolomite. You know, not not unlike how, say, Richard Pryor created the character of Mudbone. And supposedly he got the idea of the character when he listened to a homeless man who would tell all these Dolomite stories in the record store where Rudy Ray Moore worked. How would you define the character of Dolomite? You know, that's a little bit difficult because the idea of who Dolomite is... (laughs) is not what you necessarily find in the movies. Well, Dol- where Dolomite ends and Rudy Ray Moore begins mm-hmm. is, uh, I think, a little ambiguous. And in these four movies, Dolomite is in the first two of them, and then the third and fourth, he's, I guess, playing different characters. But really, they might as well be the same character. But in the first two, Dolomite is not the star of the films. He almost shares it with an ensemble of people around him. Well, he's definitely the uh, main force of gravity in the films. Mm-hmm. The, the films revolve around Rudy Ray Moore and his uh, particular brand of charisma. I always assume that Dolomite was the coolest cat in town, did martial arts was loved by every single lady, and he was just, like, what you wanted to be. And by the way, that's where the human tornado comes from, because he is a tornado in the sack. (laughs) That's right. And ladies love him in these movies. And he is a man of Falstaffian appetites, it's fair to say. (laughs) That's right. Him and his big old buttocks are constantly... Getting in bed with a succession of beautiful women of of, uh, many different races. Now, does he look cool? He's dressed to the nines all the time. Oh, is he ever? 
Is he a martial arts master? No, not at all. Uh, well, I think that within the diegesis of the film, he is a martial arts master. To my eyes, is he a martial arts master? <laughs> Maybe not. Well, in the films, anytime he throws a punch or a kick, it's usually shot from the back of his head because it's not Rudy Ray Moore. Yeah, and usually the punch or the kick will miss by a good six inches. But what really surprised me is that, like, his character is constantly being defeated by other people, which is the one thing that took me off guard. Because <laughs> when I think of Dolomite, I think of, like, the baddest guy that cinema has ever seen. And in these films, it's almost as if Rudy Mo Ray Moore is continually being defeated to the point in his last two films... He essentially loses. Yeah, they're very downbeat endings, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they are, which kind of blew my mind. But let's take Dolomite as like the first point of discussion, because this film starts exactly the way I wanted. Dolomite, who's been in jail under false pretenses, is let out because there's a drug wave that's going through his neighborhood, and they believe he's the only man that can stop it. He was framed for a drug crime by a rival nightclub owner. Dolomite also has a nightclub, and the rival nightclub owner is played by Derville Martin, who's the director of the film, and also directed a lot of Fred Williamson's exploitation movies, and was also an actor in, um, I think, Rosemary's Baby and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and some others. And it should be stated right off the bat that Derville Martin had no respect for this movie. He thought it was shit. He supposedly wasn't very interested in making a good picture because he didn't believe he could do it with this material. I mean, the movie would indicate that. <laughs> well, it's hard for me to assess Derville Martin's uh, directorial skill because if this movie were better directed, would it be the movie that people love? No. Uh, probably not. Well, the thing that people always talk about is the fact that boom mics fall into frame. Mm -hmm. To the point that, like, Black Dynamite, the kind of, like, takeoff of Dolomite's character, the film starring Michael J. White, has a, like, boom mic gag that's a direct reference to Dolomite. And that's because oftentimes the film would be shown on video in the wrong aspect ratio. It's mm -hmm. a movie that was supposed to be matted for a 1.85 release but of course it was you know shown in the academy ratio on video and uh the the boom mic wasn't supposed to be seen on the screen and in fact the vinegar syndrome blu-ray has the alternate you know full frame boom mm -hmm. mic version because they admit that that's what people remember and love about Dolomite. Now, it's not the only thing that people love, but it's one of the main things people remember. And, I mean, the cinematographer Nicholas Joseph von Sternberg, yes, the son of the famous director, <laughs> admits that, like, he did crop it incorrectly from the get-go. So even in the widescreen version, you'll see, like, a boom mic fall in every now and then, mm -hmm. but not as much as when you see the full-screen version, where it's essentially another character in the film. It's going to be a little hard for me to talk about these films individually because, you know, watching them all in the span of a week... They, they really blur together. I mean, more than most people's movies. What I found was that they were very distinct because of the way they evolved. So, uh -huh. like, we could talk about them all in one go and just compare and contrast scenes and stuff like that. Sure, but, but like, stylistically and in terms of, like, their competence. Well, Dolomite is the most incompetently filmed. <laughs> yeah, Like... This is people that are making their first movies and don't know exactly how they should go about it. But it's also a movie that it's a spoof mm -hmm. of black exploitation movies as much as it is a black exploitation movie. It's done in the same kind of spirit as Rudy Ray Moore's comedy albums where, you know, Rudy Ray Moore is not a great comedian either. He's not a great actor, he's not a great filmmaker, but there's just a sort of spirit of the enterprise that that is very like kind of 
has a handmade uh vulgar quality it's like as a comedian as a as a filmmaker he is the equivalent of a greasy spoon restaurant so you admitted before we started recording this podcast that your biggest stumbling block was watching and enjoying these films that you don't find rudy ray more funny I like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he. I mean, I'll admit, I don't find him funny either. Yeah. Like in the Human Tornado, where he's like yucking it up in his kung fu scenes and like making crazy noises and move, moving his head all over the place. Or his stand-up routines, the insult comedy bits. Maybe it had to be there. Yeah. We're also two white guys talking about a black comedian. That's true. Who and these, was massive yeah. in the black community. And these uh, these movies are like very black mm-hmm. movies. They're like mostly made by black people and they're mostly made for black audiences. Rudy Ray Moore would tour the films himself mm-hmm. because with Dolomite, he didn't have enough of a distribution arm. So he'd go to the studios, do like an introduction, a little Q&A, sell his records as he went along. The movies are intermingled so closely to his personal personality Mm -hmm. that it's difficult to understand them watching them now on this pristine blu-ray and i also think you know because they're such black movies to their dna uh and they mostly played in black neighborhoods for black audiences you know maybe the fact that uh they're a little rough around the edges almost like contributed to their appeal because these are not movies that hollywood was dying to make i mean dolomite handcrafted is being very generous towards rudy ray moore toured the country and saved up a hundred thousand dollars of his own money to make this movie. And Dolomite, not only was it made, like, funded principally by Rudy Ray Moore, he also shot it in the hotel, the Dunbar, that he owned, becoming the studio for the four pictures that he started in that 70s period. So this is not a movie that went through any of the usual Hollywood gatekeeper processes. Mm-hmm. This is not a movie any Hollywood studio would have made. And, you know, because of that, the fact that it's so ragged and it's so kind of proudly vulgar mm-hmm. and, and everything contributes, I think, to what made it so appealing. It was something that you couldn't get anywhere else. Yeah. And the fact that it was so... So pure. (laughs) That's, I believe, where its power came from. Mm -hmm. And, like, do you think it's maybe just diluted when we watch it, like, two white guys who have access to any movie that we want? Well, I I mean, I don't know. uh, There are a lot of white people who love Rudy Ray Moore, too. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's just a generational thing, because Rudy Ray Moore was rediscovered in the 80s and 90s. His comedy routines would be sampled on rap albums, for instance. So Mm -hmm. other generations discovered him and loved him. That was really like when he came back but even when he was releasing the movies the human tornado was one of the most successful independent films in the year that it was released Mm. like it made 12 million dollars i believe that's crazy for a film that probably cost about two hundred thousand. i would say yeah and it's also a film that it's much sillier than dolomite but it's more of the same really i think the human tornado is probably my favorite of these four movies Mm. because uh, there's a very tricky line these movies walk of like how silly is too silly. Maybe if I have a bit of a barrier to appreciating the movies, I mean, it's it's ridiculous to say there's not a lot of gravity there, <laughs> but, but, but it's like, you know, if they're not all that funny and they're not all that exciting and they're not all that engrossing as, as stories and Rudy Ray Moore is only, you know, so good in front of the camera, like, what is there? But you know? isn't it the same kind of cult of personality that you have with other directors that you love as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But it's just that not one that I guess you came to early enough or one that... Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to sound too down on it because I did have a pretty good time watching mm-hmm. these movies. These movies are so like... Like, 
shameless that you can't not like them. You know? I mean, like Rudy Ray Moore fucks somebody so hard that it causes a house to collapse around them. <laughs> yeah. Or there's a scene in the human tornado where, you know, some racist cops break into the mansion where he's having a party and they bust into the bedroom and they find Rudy Ray Moore there fucking the chief of police's wife. And, and the wife is paying Rudy Ray Moore to fuck her. <laughs> yeah. And then as he escapes, he runs out and he like jumps off the balcony. It pauses and you hear Rudy Ray Moore in the narration go, you didn't believe I made that jump, did you? Well, watch again. And then it goes back and replays. Like, Rudy Ray Moore did not make that jump. That's <laughs> not Rudy Ray Moore. <laughs> and that adds to what's funny yeah. about it too. So how can you not enjoy that? I mean... I loved uh, Petey Wheatstraw, The Devil's Uh Son-in-Law. This is the film that I feel is the craziest out of all the ones that Rudy Ray Moore made. Uh, It's verging on the territory of like a Mexican luchador film (laughs) where Rudy Ray Moore dies and makes a deal with the devil that he'll marry his horrible looking daughter. But then the devil gives him a chance to go take revenge on the people that murdered him mm-hmm. and also gives him a magical stick that can grant his every wish. Uh, not just a magical stick, a magical pimp cane. That's right. And so Rudy Ray Moore in one scene jogs down the street out of focus in slow motion, <laughs> making like fat people thin, makes a cheating husband into a dog. Yeah. Like that stuff is so much fun. Yeah. And he also Kung Fu fights a bunch of like mealy oatmeal face <laughs> demon people. Yeah, I guess that is pretty fun. I also liked the opening of the movie where, first of all, you see him being born during a, a hurricane. And then in the, in the opening credits, he like trains to become a kung fu master. Uh, you didn't point out that he is born as a fully grown child who then <laughs> attacks the doctor who yes. is uh, in the room. And after he becomes a kung fu master, he decides that really what he wants to do is, is use his powers to become a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> And then you probably get one of the purest examples in his narrative films of him just, like, riffing with an audience. Yeah. The thing about Rudy Ray Moore as well is that, like, he would tell these long rhyming stories, which I've heard um, described as toasts, Mm -hmm. which is, like, an African-American tradition of, like, more it's like a story where it's, like, a wily character kind of figures how to get out of a situation in a humorous fashion. Yeah, oftentimes the movies will kind of, like, grind to a halt mm-hmm. i don't mean it in a bad way because i like these scenes but yeah. it'll grind to a halt as like characters surround dolomite like they're his apostles <laughs> while he unleashes this torrent of vulgar rhymes i think that like i what... can't believe i'm saying the word vulgar so much i sound like margaret dumont <laughs> <laughs> uh, i wouldn't recommend this film for children or the easily um offended yeah But, like, in Petey Wheatstraw, Rudy Ray Moore is also, like, a big coward. Like, he's terrified constantly by the devil, screaming and, like, running away. But then also opening a can of whoop-ass if the situation accounts for it. It's a real, like, tonal zigzag that I really appreciate. Yeah, there's not a lot of uh, internal logic Mm -mm. to it. It's... I, I compare things often to the Marx Brothers, but it's like a Marx Brothers movie where it'll often, like, grind to a halt for just a little comic flight of fancy, like where one they go to a, a nightclub and Rudy Ray Moore gets into this comical debate with the waiter, or not a waiter, what, the manager about, like, uh, shitting. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and it just like those moments while again like I like them yeah. like it's fun and I can appreciate them for what they are and maybe another viewer will find them funny I enjoy the spirit of the Enterprise and I particularly enjoyed the spirit of the least loved of the Rudy Ray Moore movies but one that I had a pretty good time with Disco Godfather so Disco Godfather was really the last of Rudy Ray Moore's kind of real movies so he did make a another Dolomite film decades later called the Dolomite Explosion that isn't held in any high regard and is just considered a failure. He was edited into some kung fu films. Yeah, there is some movie out there called Shaolin Dolomite mm-hmm. where the, the DVD cover is him as an old man, you know, putting his fists up or something. And he was actually edited into uh, a film called Ninja the Final Duel, which is an amazing movie because it's a TV show edited down to like an hour and a half. Huh. So it's just craziness uh, the entire way through but disco godfather came out in 1979 on the very 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 tail end of the disco fad so bad timing there and it's the movie that rudy ray moore credits with destroying his career it's also the most didactic of the rudy ray moore movies well it's barely a comedy like it feels like rudy ray moore and when interviewed he said that it was really the producers of the picture that kind of forced him into doing this trying to penetrate like the um mainstream which is hard to believe watching this but (laughs) i mean it's a pg rated movie so he cleans up his act quite a bit even though it's really violent as well yeah and it is an 80s psa against drugs yeah like that's what its main concern is and not in a satirical way in any way shape or form it's just about like these drugs are bad and there's long monologues about how bad these drugs are yeah it's rudy ray moore who plays a character called disco godfather which people uh, call like Mr. Disco at some point or Mr. Yeah, Godfather. Yeah. With a name like that, there was only one career possibility. The film was uh, originally called The Whack Attack, <laughs> uh, starring Disco Godfather, which maybe it would have been more successful. I don't know. This film also has endless scenes of disco dancing. Yeah. And so, not good disco dancing either. I mean, those are my favorite parts. I mean, I find this movie very funny, but it's probably the least intentionally funny of them. So like Dolomite was directed by Derville Martin and both... Uh, the Human Tornado and P.D. Wheatstraw were directed by uh, Cliff Rockmore. And so Cliff Rockmore really brought this level of silliness to the proceedings. And it's not clear why he didn't come back to direct Disco Godfather. They actually got another guy who never directed another film again, never really worked in television. And supposedly the cast and crew said that Cliff kind of like ghost directed the movie. Mm-hmm. But it, that's why the film has such a weird tone to it, where it's like, yeah, it's not particularly silly like almost nothing happens in it as well but there are some pretty wild scenes in it yes Uh, because uh, when people take pcp they hallucinate and do they ever hallucinate (laughs) yep (laughs) Uh, and tonally as as you said it is a weird mishmash because uh, maybe there are 20 minutes of these crazy hallucination scenes another 20 minutes of uh, wacky disco footage and then the rest of it feels like kind of a more straight-faced version of the other Dolomite movies Mm -hmm. where the production values are about on the same level as one of those Johnny Wad porn movies. I would say it's probably the slickest of, after you saying that, of all the Rudy Ray Moore uh, starring pictures. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a film that, I mean, I found it tough to enjoy just because I like the craziness of Petey Wheatstraw so much Mm -hmm. that, like, Disco Godfather was such a step down from that. Yeah. This is one that it could feel like a bunch of white people could easily like make fun in like a bad movie whatever yeah maybe that's why i had a good time <laughs> on it. 
I mean, it's a, it's definitely the most digestible one. Because when we were talking about it, you're like, I love those scenes. They're just locked off shots of people dancing. <laughs> yeah. uh, the director of the film said, there's probably an okay 30 minute motion picture there. And I would, I would agree yeah, with him. <laughs> yeah, I think he's right. Although I think you could say that about all of the Rudy Ray Moore movies, because there are always at least 20 minutes of these movies where I'm very bored. Yeah, I mean, it's like they're tough like they're not marvels of storytelling no they're not (laughs) they're very ramshackle constructions if anything and like disco godfather just tanked rudy ray moore's career completely and that's interesting because the first two movies that he made were obviously very successful um and the fact that he never really got another mainstream he never got any mainstream shot really well Uh, he did right after the human tornado have a co-starring role in the monkey hustle which was directed by arthur marks and was a a studio picture it starred uh, yafet kodo mm -hmm. and is about kind of like a day in the life of this urban uh neighborhood Mm -hmm. and rudy ray moore played an oversized gangster called Goldie who dresses in like a pure gold suit. Mm. So even at this point, they're treating him as like an over-the-top crazy figure. And it's so surreal in the film to see him on the same screen as Yafet Kodo Mm -hmm. because they seem like two worlds that would never come together. But yeah, the Dolomite movies came, really they they emerged as the blaxploitation boom was dying out. And it's a little weird that the blaxploitation boom died out because it's not like you know, there weren't black audiences who would have liked to have seen movies with black people. Yeah, but the white producers were like, oh, we probably tapped this vein enough. Yeah, I, and when in reality, they just made a lot of really bad movies. Yeah, because they the treated end. their audiences like shit and yeah. thought that they would still come out and watch it. Yeah, um, but I do wonder if this cycle of movies had continued, if Rudy Ray Moore could have survived into the 80s, because watching these movies, I kind of felt like, you know, by the time Disco Godfather comes out, it's running on fumes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Was there a lot more that you could do with Rudy Ray Moore in a movie? Yeah, I don't know if you could, because his kind of personality is so distinct and... Limited? If The way we're explaining this, and when you actually see the movies, like, they're so much different than you think they would. Like, Rudy Ray Moore is not, like, a fit, like, charismatic kung fu dude. He's definitely his own flavor. (laughs) And I think that's why he's lasted so long, though, Mm. because he is such an individual in that sense. And he is a great speaker. Yes, he is. Yeah, like, when he does those those comic raps, they're very... You know, it is hypnotic hearing him talk. And you can understand why people would see this and be inspired by it, especially black audiences that don't have this kind of like independent came from nothing in this era of movie making. Mm -hmm. And that's why, like, it's so memorable and so long lasting, I would say. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that like people would want to make a movie about this. And there are also movies that are, as I said, shamelessly entertaining. They've Mm -hmm. got Kung Fu in them. They've got uh, Dirty Jokes sex, violence, Mm -hmm. uh, disco dancing. Uh, There's a lot of stuff in here that will be enjoyed by people who like this stuff. And it's a shame that, like, as we mentioned, he didn't even, like, act really in cameos for decades after that. Like, he would appear here and there. Um, He was in Penitentiary 2, which was uh, the sequel to another of the biggest independent films of all time, one directed by Jema Fanaka. Well, oh my god, another uh, film that's about black people directed by black people that was a huge hit 
oh, would studios maybe see there's a trend here? No, because they're dumb and they're racist. And it wasn't until the 90s where Two Live Crew, another famously like dirty rap band, started to sample Rudy Ray Moore that brought him into prominence again to the point that like Mad TV are doing sketches about them, Mm -hmm. like reoccurring sketches, Mm -hmm. and that Martin Short is having him appear as Dolomite on his TV show. (laughs) And I mean, unfortunately, that was pretty much it. Unfortunately, he died. But his persona continues to live on. And I'm really curious to see what's going to happen when that like big Eddie Murphy starring Wesley Snipes picture comes out. And if it's going to like bring him back into the conversation and people will rediscover these films. I'm interested in seeing more kind of normies find mm-hmm. out about Rudy Ray Moore. What like I assume since I think it's Netflix who's making this biopic, yes. right? Well, they'll probably license the movies and put them up as they usually do when they do something like this. And mm-hmm. yeah, are people going to watch this and just stumble on Rudy? What will they make of it? I mean, these movies are so kind of outside like they're much more ragged than most of what casual next Netflix viewers will ever see. But will they approach them like they approach the movies of Ed Wood when they came out? Because mm-hmm. this new Rudy Ray Moore pick shares the same screenwriters as yeah. the Ed Wood picture. I'm curious to know if like people like my parents will stumble upon it, watch a Rudy Ray Moore film and be like, oh, he's the worst filmmaker ever. So bad it's good. Yeah, yeah. and these movies... They're not quite so bad it's good. I mean, it's a they do walk kind of a, a tricky line of like, they're definitely oftentimes shoddy in a way that's not intentional, but they're mm-hmm. also much more self-aware than someone like Ed would. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we'll talk about the movie when it comes out. I hope that it's good. Mm-hmm. Will Eddie Murphy finally get that Oscar? Well, right. I'm sure he'll get a Lifetime Achievement Award at some point. <laughs> ah, those worthless Always statues. Always on black. <laughs> yeah. So, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do. Um, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So our first letter is from John Semley. <gasps> is this the same John Semley that's writing a book called Haters that's going to be published by... I don't know who it's published by, but it's a book called Hater. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's right. right. And, and also... Coming soon to bookstores. Also guest on our James Whale episode. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He goes... Hey guys, long-time listener, one-time guest, first-time writer. Enjoyed your Herzog episode and agree with your evaluation of him as vice guide to film filmmaker. <laughs> I literally worked on that show and Herzog was the first approved episode precisely <laughs> because he and his work present as the kind of work you get into when you get into cinema. I'm wondering if you could talk about some gateway filmmakers who turn you onto the medium. I remember Spielberg, Hitchcock, and James Whale being the first ones I sought out as a kid after realizing that the words directed by actually connect noted something and following that when were you guys first aware of a director in that sense not in an auteur theory way or anything but i'd love to hear when you guys realize that specific filmmakers uh make the films you like apologies i'm three gins in great podcast boys john well thank you john uh i have a very specific answer for that actually i know who it was it was uh the shift from tim burton to joel schumacher in the batman <laughs> franchise as a six-year-old, of course, I loved Batman Forever, but the the change was so radical that, of course, I became aware at that stage that there was a man named Tim Burton who made the first two Batman movies and a man named Joel Schumacher who made the third, and they had different visions for, you know, uh, the sorts of movies they were making. And also, Tim Burton was probably the very first director I loved because mm-hmm. in, the, in the early 90s, stuff like Beetlejuice, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, th- those are... Those were popular movies. I think that probably the first director I became aware of 
was probably Steven Spielberg, but I would say the one yeah. that I cared the most about was George Lucas because I love those Star Wars films and there was a promise of Star Wars films in the future. So he was the first person that I realized like, oh, he makes these movies yeah. and he will make more of them. And that promise always depended on like, yeah, they were they were coming out of this this genius man's mm-hmm. genius brain, and th- and it was this man, this this bearded, unassuming man who was talking to Leonard Malton at the start of those VHS tapes. Yeah, that's right. In the THX approved Star Wars, but you know, in terms of directors who maybe uh, kicked us up to a higher level of film appreciation, I think. Charlie Chaplin was probably the first great director I loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if Spielberg and Tim Burton are obviously good directors or have have good moments, but Charlie Chaplin was kind of a next level filmmaker. And as a teenager, I think Orson Welles, Wong Kar Wai, and Werner Herzog were very important directors for me. And I think I've talked about this on some of the earlier episodes, but they're filmmakers who are like very showy filmmakers whose authorial stamp is very present, but they're also very accessible filmmakers to a teenager. Yeah, like they're not difficult. Yeah. And something like Wong Kar Wai can have the illusion of being difficult, Mm -hmm. but as a teenager, you're like, well, I get this. Like, I'm smart. Like, he's one of those guys. Uh, For me, and I've talked about this before, it's definitely George Romero, Peter Jackson, Dead Alive. And the first time I ever bought uh, a movie myself on VHS, just randomly, and I probably didn't even know what I was getting. It was just cheap at HMV. Remember when there was uh, VHS at HMV? Remember when there was a store called HMV? Wow. It was Big Trouble in Little China and Reservoir Dogs, which is funny that it would be those two films, which are distinctly inspired by Hong Kong cinema, which would then become my great passion after that. I'm sure Tarantino, by the way, was was that director for lots of people, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because he's the one that like was swearing in his movies, <laughs> which made it really taboo for teenagers. And he was also the filmmaker that was pushed out the most. Like you could not walk into a store without copies of Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs just staring you right in the yeah. face. And, and he was a director, and still is, who's like a big media personality. Mm-hmm. You know, he hosted SNL, for God's but sake. But he wasn't a media personality in my life, because mm-hmm. I didn't watch that stuff. So I wasn't even aware of him as a person when I picked wow. up Reservoir Dogs. This was in a time where I had to watch Reservoir Dogs in the only VCR in the house, which was in the living room, late at night between when my mom went to her room to get ready and I had to go to bed was the sound turned low <laughs> so they couldn't hear all the swearing that was in it. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Terry Gilliam. Like that was oh, one of yeah. the big ones because he's so visually opulent and in your face that you go, wow, this is what a director does. Like this is what's important. Yeah, he was very important to me too. Oh, and uh, uh, Woody Allen probably as well when I was a teenager. Oh, I should point out that probably the third or fourth VHS that I bought was a really expensive copy that I found in a comic book store, City on Fire. I didn't even realize that Reservoir Dog kind of ripped it off. Not really. Mm. But uh, I didn't like it. Oh, wow. I think that probably because it wasn't a John Woo movie and Mm. that's what I want. Like, here's Chiring Fat. Here's a film that inspires Reservoir Dogs. And, like, there's not really any gunfights or anything that I would associate with that Hong Kong style, which is really the John Woo style. Did you like that Ringo Lamb one that, uh, oh, God, why am I forgetting the title? Full Contact. Uh, I did see it later, and it it took me a little bit of time to warm to it. Because Ringo Lamb is a director that, like, he doesn't want to imitate John Woo. Like, he's trying to do Mm -hmm. his own thing, which is a little bit distancing when a lot of Hong Kong cinema are taking their cues from Wu and trying to do their own version of it. I mean, Ringo Lamb is a director that I've come to love, like Mm -hmm. stuff like School on Fire 
or um, his take on the kind of wuxia picture, uh, Burning Paradise, is insane and the most violent kung fu picture you'll see outside of Story of Rikkyo. But uh, thanks for the letter, John. And uh, I look forward to your book. I'm excited to finally learn how to hate. Um, Our next letter is from P.D. Walter. And it was a bit of a long one, but he did have a question in the middle of it that I wanted to talk about a little bit. He goes... Digital versus film. I watched Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Dance of Reality the other day and really liked it, but it was shot digitally, so everything is high res and in that sense fake looking. You are never persuaded that you are looking at something real, but something highly artificial and stagey. It kept me at a distance from the film emotionally, and even though the story, which is autobiographical, is totally gripping, I couldn't get into it. For some reason, the inability not to notice that it was made digitally made me feel like I was watching the idea of scenes rather than the scenes themselves. It feels like a bit like reading a screenplay and thinking, I like the ideas, but you don't come away from it feeling like you have seen the film, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Have you ever felt this about digital cinema? Is it a problem unique to the highly symbolic theatrical sort of cinema Jodorowsky makes? No. Or is it just a problem with digital cinema? Yes. Let's talk about it, though. You know, I think my reaction to digital cinema is maybe the opposite, where I don't think it looks too fake. I think it looks too real. Mm -hmm. Like, it looks real in a way that's kind of mundane like it takes away from that dreamy quality that 35 millimeter can give you i think that like it's a much larger discussion that i would almost want to spend a whole patreon episode talking about but like digital cinema is tied into this idea of cheapness and like what is cheapness what is good cheapness what is bad cheapness and that like this particular point in time most strands of digital cinema are just cheap and you can't get into it and it kind of represents something else. Well, they look affectless, yes. you know, they don't have the sumptuous quality. I mean, there are many digital shot movies that look wonderful, but but something like First Reformed, and I'm just using it as an example because there's been some debate around its look. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that looks very intentionally kind of sterile and affectless. And, you know, it's a movie that uses, I guess, the inherent qualities of digital to its advantage. But, you know, something like a David Dakota movie, yeah. like A Talking Cat, also has that affectless quality and really it almost looks kind of like a surveillance camera footage it all depends as well of how something is directed but there is like a level of even if the thing is super energetic and like passionate that it will still be considered cheap and audiences will recoil from it. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm thinking of, like, a bunch of, like, low-budget horror films I've been watching this week and the way that, like, it's easier to enjoy a movie that they made earlier that was shot on video that has an aesthetic quality Mm -hmm. to it than it is to enjoy a film that was made in 2006 that's shot on MIDI-DV. And I think that's just the way that we grow as kind of like viewers, like what we like and what we don't like and what certain things represent. Well, yeah, a lot of that has to do with nostalgia mm-hmm. and with like having a certain amount of distance from it. The VHS aesthetic looks cool to us now because it's not the norm anymore. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it, it has like its own qualities. Yeah. But I wonder like someone who was born post 2000 and would watch a film that like was shot in 2005 on like shitty ass digital cameras that automatically make the viewer go, whoa, that looks cheap. If they will have an affinity for it that we don't. I wonder, you know, when I was in New York last summer, I went to this like little storefront theater in Williamsburg called The Spectacle, I think it was. Yeah, The Spectacle Cinema. Yeah, and they were having a a little retrospective of 
uh, called that they called This Is Mini DV, mm-hmm. uh, where it was filmed shot on Mini DV. And there was one film called Yeast, which was a mumblecore movie starring Greta Gerwig, where it was shot on Mini DV, and it's a very frantic look. And because it's so frantic, and because the technology was so cheap, it, there was so much like digital artifacting in it, and it looked kind of neat. And, yeah, that's the yeah. thing, right? Like, and Inland Empire looks kind of neat when you see it now too, because like even the film that I made, Impossible Horror had a lot of digital grain that was all over the place Mm -hmm. and we kind of like digitally removed most of it and what's funny about that is 10 years from now like people would be like oh that looks cool like because it represents a particular technology but in this moment using today's technology that's looked as a negative kind of like the way that flares up until a cinematographer used a flare on purpose Mm -hmm. that people started to use them stylistically because before that it was a mistake and like you fucked up the shot and you would have to restart if you saw flare so what you're saying is that like all geniuses you will only be recognized <laughs> after you die no not after i die i said a decade. In, in 10 years <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but i would actually say that mini dv like will said has that nostalgic value now like if it's like around 2000 it has a warmth to the colors <laughs> that i'm like oh i like that that state-of-the-art digital stuff now doesn't have. I even have that for my T2i, which I shot Teddy Bomb on. I'm like, I like the colors more than I like high-def technology. That said, I think I'm sober-minded enough and have enough of a sense of objectivity to know that 35mm looks better than mini-DV, right? It does look better. Yeah. Yeah, it does. But it's just like a different aesthetic. And the idea of, like, cheapness is something that, and distance when something is shot on digital, is probably a topic we should tackle later on. Write it on the list. Yeah, yeah. But uh, thank you very much for the uh, letter, P.D. Walter. And the next letter is from Stephen Foxworthy, and he goes, Greetings, fellows. Second time letter writer here. Well, thank you very much. As a fellow podcaster myself, I co-host the Rule of Thirds film podcast. A couple of friends of mine. Whoa, 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 what? Free advertising. Free advertising. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious about what other podcasts you guys listen to, aside from your own, naturally. Yeah, I just put mine and Will's podcast 24-7 every now and then. An episode of Michael and Us comes on, but that's pretty much it. And then you you try to get rid of it as quickly (laughs) as possible. It's like, no, I can't listen to Will cheating on me with other podcast hosts. (laughs) Justin mentioned last episode that he enjoyed the DGA Director's Cut podcast, and I'm sure Will sang the scene from How Did This Get Made at some point in the past. What other podcasts do you regularly enjoy? Be they film podcasts or some other genre? How do these shows influence the podcast you guys do? Thanks for your time and thanks for consistently putting out such excellent podcasts. I finally got a chance to watch Detour for the first time and found it as good as advertised. Thanks for the recommendation and thanks again for a show I look forward to every week. Well, thank you very much. I mean, obviously we've listened to a lot of podcasts over the years and I think that like like any art form, you get good at something by... Uh, <laughs> Immersing yourself into the art form. (laughs) We've talked about it before, but me personally, the podcasts that I like are the ones that are conversational, usually a bunch of friends hanging around and talking about stuff. The ones that are like really well produced, like some of the NPR ones or the true crime ones I don't like. Yeah. I mean, some of the NPR ones have like great interviews. Yeah. I Um, love interview podcasts. Like I would put those into the conversational ones, but I'm thinking of like Serial and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Kind of like podcast narratives. And I don't really listen to any scripted podcasts. Well, something like Serial... 
Podcasts are great to listen to on your commute where your attention can maybe stray <laughs> a little bit. And so if it's a conversational podcast, the stakes are a little lower. Whereas on something like Serial, uh, you know, you have to be kind of more invested in the story. And if you miss something, it can be a problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, what podcasts have influenced us, would you say? Uh, that have influenced us? I don't know. I don't think there's one in particular, but certainly the the form of podcasting. Yeah, in of itself. Probably our Lord and Master, Kevin Smith, and his Smodcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, what I think has influenced the podcast is bad podcasts. Mm. Oftentimes we've heard podcasts, or I have, where I might make a mental note like, oh yeah, don't don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we're lucky that when I edit, it's just kind of like removing long gaps of silence. And it's pretty hate much, speech. That's right. <laughs> but like, as far as podcasts that I listen to regularly, speaking of NPR, uh, I listen to Pop Culture Happy Hour when it comes out, which is co-hosted by Will Sloan's mentor, Linda Holmes. That's right. He worked at NPR. I don't think you've ever said that before yeah, on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, did, I did an internship at NPR in 2012, and I shared a desk with Linda Holmes. In fact, and Linda Holmes uh, gave me quite a bit of work after that as well. Do you think she listens to this podcast? I know that Linda was a job recommendation for me once, and I got the job, so right. I will always be in her debt for that. So, no. <laughs> um, I also listen to the Judge John Hodgman podcast, which is one of the rare comedy podcasts I listen to. Uh, I listen to Shockwaves, which is the Blumhouse podcast, where it's just like friends talking about horror movies. I listen to, of course, The Dig, because I need to get my socialist podcasting in, uh, the Jacobin Magazine podcast. Not a Chapo Trap House guy. No, no, (laughs) not at all. I listen to a bunch of episodes, probably when me and Will started recording this podcast, and you mentioned Chapo, you, and you, you said you would, you will not like it. <laughs> I, I said you wouldn't like it, and you tried very hard. I and, did, yeah. And so you definitely gave it an honest shot. Yeah, fucking irony, bros. Justin doesn't like uh, corrosive irony. No, I don't. I don't yeah. like hateful people that, like, their comedy is just making the people listen go, yeah, those people are dumb, aren't they? We're the smart ones. (laughs) So not a fan of the Michael and Us podcast, clearly. Never heard of it. Um, (laughs) I listened to The Movie Crypt, which is an interview show with filmmakers. Obviously, The Flophouse, which is probably the one of the first podcasts I started to listen to regularly, other than our Lord and Master Kevin Smith and his Smodcast. Oh, God. Come on, let's be honest. You listened to Smodcast before Smith got into weed. Yes, I did. Yeah, that's so 2007, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah, I did. That Smodcast, I'm sorry to say, was the first podcast I ever listened to regularly. It was mine as well. It was like, whoa, I love Kevin Smith's commentary tracks, and he's doing one every week? Clerks, I love that movie. <laughs> I'm 18 years old. <laughs> uh, I also listened to WrestleSplania, a show where two women talk about wrestling and supporting characters. Okay, I was going to mention two podcasts, and that was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it, I, I want to highlight two film-related podcasts. I could talk about a million film-related podcasts. But you don't listen to them. Well, I don't <laughs> I don't want to leave anyone out. You yeah, know? that's right. Uh, but, but supporting characters, I, I very much like. It's by hosted by Bill Ackerman. I believe his name That's is. That's correct. And it's these long form interviews with, uh, you know, v- various film writers and programmers. Yeah, it's the people that usually don't 
get shows centered on them. The people that usually host shows. And people that you might follow on Twitter or mm-hmm. that we, we probably might follow on Twitter. I love the show. It's like every time there's a new episode, even if I don't recognize the person, I'm excited because I'm going to learn about this person or that I don't know. somebody will be on it and I think, yeah, I guess I am curious about their story. Yeah, you know? like um, there was an episode on William Lustig that came out recently mm. that was amazing because I love William Lustig as a director and I really love him as like a film fan and film distributor and this is where you can get all those stories. And then you get an episode with someone like Maitland McDonough. I'm sorry if I'm saying that name incorrectly. The writer of Broken Mirrors, Broken Minds, The Dark Dreams of Dario Argento. And who also served as a writer for TV Guide for a really long time. And you get like a different perspective than you usually would. Because she's not usually in the current conversation. Even though that she is an amazing writer. And I would highly recommend checking out all her books. What was the second podcast you're going to... Because... I think it may be the one I was going to say. The Realtor Report. Yep, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> the Realtor Report, I think, is actually my very favorite podcast. Mm-hmm. And what is it? It is about the porn industry, but specifically the 70s and 80s. And it's these wonderful long-form interviews and sometimes audio documentaries about the major players from the porn industry. And so many of, you know, they're, they're such beautifully crafted episodes that it's not just like a loose free form conversation they really figure out what is the story in these people's lives and many of the stories are are profoundly moving mm-hmm. and they're also great historians so there will be episodes about just interesting moments of i guess sex film history that you may have forgotten about the roberta finley episode may be one of the best podcast mm-hmm. episodes ever yeah there's an incredible one too about constance money the star of the opening of misty beethoven uh, i don't know there they're all incredible yeah there's a great Al Goldstein episode I would go and just subscribe to it and just listen to them from the beginning because they're all worthwhile Mm -hmm. and even if you're like well I'm not really interested in 70s pornography you'll be interested in these stories because they're just human stories oftentimes about filmmaking yeah so definitely check it out as per usual you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com And this week on our Patreon, we did an episode about a director that all of you have been clamoring for, (laughs) William Bodine. Yes, the director of Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. And 500 other films, literally. Director who worked with the Three Stooges. He made Charlie Chan films. He made 29 Bowery Boys films. Mm -hmm. He worked with just tons and tons and tons of people. Two Mary Pickford vehicles. And he is nobody's favorite director. And we talk about him for 20 minutes. So check that out. It's $5 a month and you get four exclusive episodes of the Important Cinema Club podcast a month. We're 10 people away from 150, and then we can reveal our very special gift commentary track that we're going to give to you. And if we get 150 by the end of the month, I think we'll do something special. (gasps) Could we maybe do that Steve Odishkirk thumb episode? Oh, man, I would do it. (laughs) Okay, so if we get 150 people by the end of this month, me and Will will watch... Oh, my God. At least two of Stephen Odenkirk's thumb movies. Like Bat Thumb and the Blair <laughs> Thumb tanning. Project. Yeah. Um, you say this as if it's a real inducement. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen them on DVD in a used DVD store just last week. And they're just calling my name. Guess what? They have commentary tracks. <laughs> so help us get to 150 uh, Patreon subscribers. If you're a fan, please do it. We really appreciate it. 
So, what are we doing next week, Will? Well, there's a new movie coming out called Mission Impossible Fallout. We thought, listen, we've had some obscure topics lately. (laughs) Lizzie Borden, Bud Bedeker, Rudy Ray Moore. Let's give the fans a cookie. Mm -hmm. We're going to do Tom Cruise. And when Will pitched it to me, he's like, I can't believe I'm saying this. Let's do a Tom Cruise episode. I went, well, I love Tom Cruise. And Will was like, yeah, I do too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it just seemed a little bit, you know, after four weeks or so of doing these really, you know, cinephile topics, it seems like a craven bid for clicks. But people don't really talk critically about Tom Cruise and him as an actor, I would say. They more make fun of him as a person and as a face. But I would say there's a lot of appreciation for Tom Cruise going Mm -hmm. around these days because people know that even though he's a a very evil man, uh, he is also a great entertainer. So we're going to watch Born on the Fourth of July and Jerry Maguire. That's right. And I'll probably watch more Tom Cruise films because they're just fun. Yeah. So that's going to be next week. And until then, I'm Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin, you started a brand new screening series at the Royal. I did. Uh, me and my partner, Emily Milling, started a kid series called Mega Fun Movie Explosion that we're doing matinees um, at the Royal Cinema twice a month. It's a lot of work. <laughs> and this is on top of your Laser Blast Film Society. Yes, it is. Which is more kind of the, the darker, scarier underbelly <laughs> yeah, of cinema. Right. So, yeah. No one under 18 allowed. So, you know, these are the two sides of Justin. There's the there's the crazy dark movies and the crazy family movies. <laughs> You're making it sound like I show like toe tag films or something <laughs> at Laser Blast. Actually, Laser Blast is like pretty innocent. Yeah, and fun. Yeah. And that's what we want to do with Mega Fun Movie Explosion. When it was pitched to us to do like a kid series I kind of jumped onto it because I love the idea of doing matinees which cinemas don't really do anymore that's like a term that when I was a kid my dad was like let's go to a matinee and then he went oh I guess they don't really do matinees anymore well it's also a leftover from the era when parents would just like dump their kids at a movie theater for six hours mm-hmm. in the afternoon while they went off and smoked and had affairs and <laughs> that's right did, did whatever they do and you know nobody was worried about child molesters and- <laughs> I remember my mom dropping me off to see The Punisher the Thomas Jane classic with my little brother yeah. and she's like oh, I'll come back in two hours and just went on her way mm-hmm. and so this series allows me to show mostly movies that me and Emily are nostalgic about. So like a lot of stuff from the 90s and also no Disney films because Disney does not give permission to do retros. Hmm. No matter like what you do, if you email them, supposedly they don't even reply to emails. That sucks. It does. It's because they want control of the movies and how they're released. Yeah, That is such bullshit because Mm. what it results in is kids not being able to see, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Exactly. Like, we're putting it in the Disney vault because we want to maximize the profits when we release it again. But, because, like, that is such an idea that is ancient because, like, the internet, you can watch anything now. So put it out and available in the easiest way possible. I mean, the result is, like, I don't know a kid who has seen a Mickey Mouse cartoon. No. Like, we didn't see Mickey Mouse cartoons when we were kids. Because, like, we were kids and then when we were teenagers, they suddenly released all those tins that were like $70 each yeah. so that they only marketed to people that were nostalgic for that. So this movie screening series, all right, back on a positive note, because obviously the first thing I wanted to do was like, all right, let's show a goofy movie. And uh, (laughs) the manager of the cinema is like, you're not going to get Disney on the phone. Like you won't be able to play it. And I'm like, who 
who is showing a goofy movie? Like, no one is. Like, they should be happy we'll pay the money to do this. Yeah. But nope. Um, so we're show- we show, like, Adam's Family Values. We're showing Cloak and Dagger as well this month, which is a film that not too many people our age would know. I actually only stumbled upon it a few years ago. It stars Henry Thomas and uh, Dabney Coleman, the mm. uh, star of 9 to 5. And uh, the Beverly Hillbillies. And it's about a young kid that... Um, loves video games and kind of like uh, role-playing games. And he gets kind of like involved in this spy plot that people start coming after him. And while it sounds almost like something like uh, Dunstan checks in <laughs> with its spy plot, it's actually really serious, but it is still targeted at kids. It was directed by Richard Franklin, the guy who directed Psycho 2, uh, Patrick, uh, the great Stacy Keach movie, uh, Road Games. And it's like a true suspense film. It was also written by Todd Holland, the writer of Fright Night, mm. uh, and uh, the Whoopi Goldberg vehicle, Fatal Beauty. And he also directed the first Chucky movie. That's uh, right, yeah. Which its name is Escaping Me. Oh, Child's Play, yeah. And it's the kind of film that like doesn't talk down to kids mm. and like treats them like you know people that can think and have genuine reactions. And it's just a great movie, and I'm really glad that I could actually bring an audience to it if they show up. And that's the tough part with this kind of stuff, which is like, people don't usually go see a movie unless they recognize it, especially if it's like a kid's movie, right? Mm -hmm. So like the idea of what we're trying to do with Mega Fun Movie Explosion is that we're going to show movies that people may not be 100% familiar with. But we're hoping that through branding, what we're going to do is let people know that this isn't just a movie. Like when we showed Adam's Family Values, we had like a whole activity center planned out where we had like a photo booth with a little diorama where you could put mm-hmm. your hand in and pretend to be thing. We made an activity sheet, like created them, crosswords and mazes with like original images that we drew. You could do hand turkeys. And most importantly, we had free candy. Mm-hmm. So any kid that came could take some candy, which is great. Because the biggest thing I want to do with the series is that maybe a kid will come once and he will remember this always. Uh, Like, you have probably screenings when you were kids, like your Batman or something like that. Oh, of course. And that you'll, like, never forget it, right? Yeah. And that's what I'm hoping to do with this kind of stuff, is that, like, a kid will come, and, like, during Cloak and Dagger, we're gonna have, like, video games, there's gonna be, like, a scavenger hunt, there's gonna be tons of stuff, and, like, that that kid will be like, man, I remember going to the thing, and it was so much fun. Why don't people do that anymore? Well, they don't do it like that right now, other than us doing it, so... I mean, like, something that I'm really excited about is that uh, next month I found a movie called Attack of the Super Monsters which is a Japanese TV show that has like animated bits like Astro Boy mixed in with puppets and like man in suit action and it's dubbed in English and they edited all the show all the episodes together and I'm going to be doing a re-edit of them with commercials and stuff like that and I'm calling it Monsterama featuring Attack of the Super Monsters oh sounds so fun so like that's the fun stuff that I want to do like selling like you don't know this movie but this is all about monsters and like (laughs) every kid loves monsters like Basically, I'll be doing a child version of Joe Dante's The Movie Orgy. So, like, that's what I'm excited for. And hopefully, if you live in Toronto and you have kids or you like 
these kind of films, please come. Well, because if nobody comes, we won't be able to do it anymore. Well, I can probably make it this weekend. Yep. Um, I'll be coming alone. <laughs> yep. Uh, and I will uh, sit alone. Yep. And uh, I will uh, uh, say to the kids, hey, do you, do you want some candy? <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, do you want some candy? Because there's free candy uh, <laughs> over at the activity table. And then we can like dramatically throw you out to show that we keep a safe environment. <laughs> but if you're in Toronto, please, please, please like the mega fun movie explosion Facebook group because I would really appreciate it.